Happy Monday. Welcome to another episode as we go through the canonical texts of Scripture, dealing primarily with the Pauline epistles. Lately, last week, we went over the Pauline epistles as they relate to his personal letters, particularly what's known as the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. They are very much disputed. Uh, today's book is not disputed as much. Now, I do encourage you to go back and listen to those that you may have missed. We've also covered the four Gospels. We did two episodes apiece on those, and we also did one episode on Acts. But for the time that we want to spend within an hour to really bring together different canonical books, both Old and New Testament, at the end we'll look at some apocryphal after we get through the entire Bible, uh, we do want to take just one episode to cover both internal and external resources to corroborate, to work with, to investigate the internal and external citations and trademarks and internal evidence or historical criteria, all the things that we want to apply to these books to find out if they truly are from who they say they're from and can they be related uh, to a work of God in history. That's the goal of what we're trying to do in this segment. So I hope that you tune in as we continue through the entire Bible. Uh, for a while, we'll be hitting some of the Pauline epistles, and then we'll actually jump right in uh, at some of the Old Testament books. We'll probably look at Torah first, and maybe Esther and some of the others, and talk about their canonical status as well. Today, we're looking at the book of Romans. And though it is not disputed in the academic world, whether you're talking about the Christian world, the skeptic world, the atheist world, or uh, any kind of line that you land in, there's really not much dispute about its Pauline authorship. However, we still want to know why it's Pauline and how we can prove that. Now, one of the things that you're going to note as we go through some of these resources and we look at some of the external evidence, some of the things that we're going to use that any modern scholar would use to say, yeah, this is Paul and here's why, a lot of the reasoning and a lot of the people that they would utilize to point it to Paul are from the same sources that call 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus Paul, uh, Ephesians, Colossians Paul. So it's kind of ironic that some of the evidence we're going to look at today is the same evidence that is used for some of the disputed books that we've already talked about and will continue to talk about if you remember from last week's episode, we jumped in and dealt with the Muratorian fragment, which had quite a bit to say about the Pauline epistles. And in it, it mentioned the order of the epistles. And today we're going to see one of the lines here as I'll read it again to you. If you're listening on facts on the podcast, just listen carefully. It says, as for the epistles of Paul, they themselves make clear to those desiring to understand which ones they are, from what place, or for what reason they were sent. All right, so we didn't spend much time on this because we wanted to get to the part about the personal letters. We talked about how the comparable uh, form of using the pastoral epistles would be to, to Philemon, not to the other general assembly letters that were sent by Paul. But in this location, I do want to hone in on that first section. It says that these epistles that Paul wrote were clear as to who they were written to, from what place, and what purpose. So we're going to find commonality in the Pauline letters that demonstrate this type of identity. So there's an identity, there's an approached audience, there's a reason for the letter, 
there's a connection to the writer and its recipient. All of these things we're going to find in the Pauline lineup of epistles. Carrying on into the letter, it says, into the Miratorian fragment, it is necessary for us to discuss these one by one. Since the blessed apostle Paul himself writes by name to only seven churches in the following sequence. Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Galatians, Thessalonians, and Romans 7th. So not that I necessarily agree with the order of the Muratorian fragment. There's actually a reason behind it. And he uses the seven correlating to John's seven churches. But with this indicator, it does place Romans last. So it is one of the last Pauline letters, which I actually agree with. I think it's one of the last general letters that he wrote to an assembly rather than individuals like the ones we talked about last week. But it is true that I would say that, that Romans is one of the last ones that Paul wrote. And we'll get into more of that in a minute. Now in this, it says there is currently other epistles to the Laodiceans and to the Alexandrians, both forged in the name of Paul to further the heresy of Marcion and several others which cannot be received in the universal church, which I want to repeat what I said last week about this line, that the Muratorian fragment was absolutely clear about the fact that the churches were not just accepting everything and anything with Paul's name on it. And that has to be, has to be understood. Because when we're dealing with this, we have to come into this and say, all right, the churches did know of forgeries. They were aware of not only the forgeries in their names, but where they originated from. So they understood origins. They understood where things came from. And if they could not locate it, or they could not connect it to whom it says it came from, it was disregarded and rejected. Or in the terms, the universal or the churches as a whole could not receive it. It was not fitting to fix, uh, to, to place gall and mix it with honey, as the Muratorian fragment says. So we need to see that they were not just accepting anything with Paul's name on it. There were criteria, the destination and location in which it came from, and the connection of the carrier of the letter to whom the church would have received it from. All of those things were vital and instrumental to making a decision for church to know whether or not it was from Paul. Also, Irenaeus in Against Heresies, book five, says this. And again, he, being Paul, says in the epistles, uh, into the epistle to the Romans. So he's already identifying the author of Romans as being Paul. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die, quoting Romans 8.13. Now, by these words, he does not prohibit them from living their lives in the flesh, for he himself in the flesh when he wrote to them, being wrote to the Romans, Paul wrote to the Romans, but he cuts away the lust of the flesh for those he brings death upon man. So what, the, what Irenaeus is saying, giving indication of the book of Romans when quoting Romans 8 here, he clearly states, it's Paul's epistle, clearly states that Paul's the author behind it, and he wrote it to the Romans themselves. So he's identifying, once again, a person of interest. Tertullian against Marcion in book five said, but he, Paul, bears testimony to the law and excuses it on the ground of sin. What shall we say, therefore? Is the law sin? God forbid. He quotes Romans 7, 7. Then he goes after Marcion 
Uh, he he goes after him, calls him out, and says, Marcion, do you see how the apostle recoils from all the impeachment of the law? It was not the law, therefore, which led me astray, but sin, taking occasion of the commandment. That's Romans 7, 8. Why then do you, O Marcion, impute to the God of the law what his apostle, being Paul, dares not impute even to the law itself? Nay, he adds a climax, the law is holy and its commandments just and good, Romans 7.13. So Tertullian fighting back against Marcion, who was pretty much anti-Jew, anti-Semitic, and he was excluding parts of the law and actually downplaying it. But he was all about Paul in some ways, except for the parts where he was too Jewish. And so what Marcion does, he actually fights back from Romans 7, or excuse me, what Tertullian does in Marcion, he fights him back from Romans 7, And he deals with it and says, Paul did not view this way. If God's apostle, now note this, Tertullian is saying that Paul was unique. He was called out by God. He was God ordained to write these things. So he saw divine nature into the wording of Paul when he's dealing with the law. And so he comes into this and he actually fights back Marcion and says, who are you to impute to the God of the law what his apostle dares not even impute? How can you do that? How can you go after God's law when the apostle that you you actually utilize doesn't go that direction? How can you do that, Marcion? So he's fighting back, and he uses Romans to do it. He has no problem saying that Paul was its author, its writer, and that he wisely and rightly used the law of God as God's apostle to do so. Eusebius in the history of the church says, but as the same apostle, being Paul, in the salutations at the end of the epistle to the Romans, he made mention among Hermas to whom the book called The Shepherd is ascribed. He's talking about the shepherd of Hermas, and he's saying, hey, you know, you can actually find the author of the book of The Shepherd of Hermas listed in the names that Paul attributes at the end of his epistle to the Romans. So, Eusebius and other places listing it a part of the 14 that Paul had. He not no doubt placed Romans in that 14, but, but specifically here states that Paul includes Hermes's name at the end of his epistle to the Romans. Again, clearly identifying who the author is. Jerome in the preface of his of the Vulgate to introduce the Pauline letters tries to justify why he places the oldest letter Uh, the one that came last, one of the last letters that Paul wrote, at the very beginning, which is how we see in our lineup in our English Bibles today. You have Acts and then Romans. Romans is the first letter of Paul that's in our Bible, but it is one of the last that Paul actually wrote. And he actually tries to justify why this is the case. He says, it has certainly disturbed some that for some reason the letter to the Romans is placed first. When reasons reveal, it is not written first. And so he's saying, yes, there's people that actually have a problem with the chronology and how I placed and how others have placed the book of Romans in Paul's lineup. For this is shown by Paul or him, Paul, to have been written traveling to Jerusalem when he was exhorting the Corinthians and others before now by letters. Now, right there, Jerome's telling us that Paul made this letter, wrote this letter, while he was in his travels going into Jerusalem. We'll talk more about this in a minute. We'll show you Romans and Acts corresponding how we can identify a date. 
but he's telling you it's a hint. It's he wrote it when he was traveling to Jerusalem, when he was exhorting the Corinthians and others before now by letters as they collected the ministry, which were carried with him. For which reason, some want all the epistles to be understood arranged thus for the first to set down, which was sent later. And through each letter by steps, he came to be more perfect. For the majority of the Romans were so ignorant as they did not understand themselves to be saved by the grace of God and not by their merits. And on account of this duo, the people struggled among themselves. Therefore, he asserted them to be in need of strengthening, recalling the former vices of the Gentiles. So he identifies clearly Paul as its author on his way to Jerusalem, and that his purpose was that these Romans were ignorant of the fact that they could not be saved by anything other than the grace of God, nothing of their own merit, which I find ironic. Jerome is writing uh, this and translating into the Latin for the church at Rome himself, working under their jurisdiction. One of the greatest sins and fallouts of Rome was that they did begin to believe that merit was a part of the salvation process, the inclusion of of uh, keeping the ordinances and, and all that the good works that are summarized and brought up versus your evil works. All of that became a big part of Roman theology, which actually, even at the time of, of, of dealing with Jerome, he actually says that Paul wrote for the purpose of people believing they could be saved by anything other than by grace. So I, I found that ironic as well, but he clearly identifies Paul as its author. Now the church very early used the book of Romans, the Didache between 90 and 96 AD quotes Romans chapter 12, verse nine. I pulled this out of my dissertation work, Ignatian to the Ignatius to the Smyrnans in 100 to 110 quotes Romans one, three. Uh, when explaining that Jesus was a descendant of David according to the flesh, taken directly from chapter 1, verse 3 of Romans. Uh, Polycarp's epistle to the Philippians, he used Romans quite a few times. He quotes Romans 14, 12. He quotes Romans 10, uh, 12, 10. And he also quotes Romans 2, 24. Now, in Origen, in 185 to 253 was his lifespan, he wrote an entire commentary on the book of Romans. Now, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of what uh, Origen did because he was expelled for uh, some of his heretical views. But the church was writing commentaries very early, quoting it in the first century into the second century, writing commentaries in the second century. Romans was a widely used, widely distributed letter, all being attributed to Paul. So let's talk about the date, location, the amanuensis, and its composition. Paul probably wrote the letter, as uh, Jerome pointed to, uh, from the city of Corinth. While he was dealing with problems there, he was probably writing this letter to the Romans while he was on his third missionary journey. Now, this can be identified from a comparison of Romans chapter 15, uh, verse number 25, which I, I will pull out and read for you. And we're going to talk more about within, within the text itself. So let's look internally here and see if we can identify kind of a timeline as to when Paul wrote this thing. In chapter 15, verse 25, he says, but now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. Now, remember, he had taken up offerings uh, for the Jews, and he was in the process of trying to help the rising persecution that had taken place in Jerusalem. It had not yet hit Rome. It's starting. It's about to begin when Paul would be writing this letter. But the main persecution hitting the churches at this point would have been in Jerusalem and Paul was going to their aid. So this would take us probably about to the time that he went there on his third missionary journey, which corresponds us with the book of Acts 
chapter number 24. So you have here, and he's telling you about his travels, his intention of going to Jerusalem. And then in Acts chapter 24, verse number 17, we have a, a connection here to what we just read. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and the offering to my nation, uh, being that in Israel, and in the midst of which some Jews in Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with the mob nor with tumult. So Paul telling you after many years, he came. So if you follow this time after his defense before, he's giving his defense for Felix. He's telling you a timeline. It's all back when he went back and tried to help them in Jerusalem, which is during his third missionary journey. So this would place the date of the book of Romans. If we correspond what he says in Romans 15 with what he tells uh, his defense when dealing with Felix there in Acts chapter number 24, been around his third missionary journey, probably between 56 and 58 AD. It would have been around that timeline. Most people would place it in that corresponding date as well. So that's about the time the book of Romans was written. Again, it was one of Paul's later letters, not one of his first. And that was recognized with all that was being said. That's why Jerome was saying, I know some are upset that I've placed Romans first in the lineup of Paul's letters, knowing it's actually one of the last that he wrote. But that would have been the, the timeline uh, and date. So the location, as Jerome had indicated as well, is that it was being done during the time of Corinth. He would have been writing it in Corinth to the churches in Rome. Now, there's indicators of this internally, too, in and you're going to find that mostly in Romans chapter number 16 when he starts giving a list of names. And the good thing about the list of names that we have really does help us identify the location, the composition, and, and the intentionality of it because he lists names in his connection. The first one is Phoebe in chapter 16, verse number one of Romans, which is an important uh, person because she's a deaconess in the church. And Paul sent her to the church in Rome as a bearer of the epistle. So she was not just an important person that he mentions. He mentions her first and foremost. He says, I commend to you, Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of, or that's the feminine form of diakonos, which is uh, kind of a female deacon idea, a servant of the church in Sincrea. Now, this is important to note what he just said here because she's from that area. So she would have had ties to Corinth because Sincrea is the port city within Corinth. So she's going to be delivering this letter. He's commending to them, Phoebe. So again, this is something that's very important that we talked about in the others. It is vital that the church knew not only a name in the letter of a writer, but who carried the letter. Because if it says, I'm sending to you, and you put a name there, Epaphras or something, and Epaphras isn't showing up with the letter, that's a problem. Um, if Paul is giving you indicators of who is delivering the letter and somebody else other than that person is delivering the letter, you can instantly be suspicious. But if Paul puts his name in it and he's sending a well-known representative of the church with the letter and gives a shout out, I commend to you, Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Corinth. So you have a location. It's coming from Corinth the carrier of the letter is going to be our friend Phoebe. So when Phoebe shows up at Rome with this letter and it's validated by their reading of her name and the insertion of the letter, she is qualified. She's connected to Paul. She is a legitimate carrier bringing a legitimate letter from Paul. There's a lot of connections there. So you have that chain of custody 
of protection so that forgeries like the letter to the Laodiceans, the letter to the Alexandrians, aren't just coming in and put people don't know how to locate them and where to identify them. But this also gives us an indication that it was written from Corinth. Also, he mentions Aquila and Priscilla in verse number three of chapter number 16. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Now, that at this point, he's stating that they're in Rome and he wants them to read this letter and make sure that they know he was giving them a hello, a salutation. Now, Paul found them originally in Corinth. They later returned to Corinth when Claudius expelled the Jews out of Rome, which you can find in Acts chapter number 18, number two. And this is possibly uh, returned to Rome after Claudius's death. So they probably went back to Rome after Claudius died, but they initially had to leave. And then it looks like they ended up coming back. They were with Paul when he wrote 1 Corinthians. Uh, if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 19. So they were a part of his earlier ministry in Corinth. Apparently, he sent them to aid the churches in, in Rome. He's giving them a shout out. They ended up going back to Corinth after Claudius uh, started persecuting there in Rome. So again, another indicator that this was compiled and done in the city of Corinth in Paul's third missionary journey. He also mentions Gaius in 1623, uh, which is referenced in 1 Corinthians 1.14 as one who lived in Corinth and some have identified him as uh, Justice in Acts 18.7. It's possible that he is the case. Some would argue it's the same Gaius that John in his letter approaches. It's hard to say because it was a common name, but no doubt he's the same guy that was mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1, more than likely, I should say, more than likely the one mentioned there, which indicates another connection to the city of Corinth. Uh, a very important one in that same verse in 1623 of Romans is Erastus. Now, he was the city treasurer or somebody who was a director of public work. And in Corinth, there's an inscription that was actually found uh, and discovered that refers to a guy by the name of Erastus as a city treasurer. Uh, you'll also find his name in 2 Timothy 4.20. Uh, but he was likely there in, in, in the city of Corinth. In fact, there's a city treasure inscription that's been found in archaeology pointing to a guy named Erastus. So that's consistent. So archaeology is now coming in and saying what Paul has said about him in 2 Timothy 4 is actually accurate. And, and, and this is important to know because we're trying to identify as many sources as possible, connecting, connecting the letter, the writer, its recipient, its timeline. We're trying to figure all that out. And the only way to do that is to connect names. So we got to look through history. We got to look through even the biblical records themselves and see if they're consistent with other locations. Looking at the timeline of Paul's ministry, we, we, we travel with him through Acts and see where he's at at that time and location. All of these things are indicators and helpers to bring about an identification of the letter's composition. And it was written in Corinth. There's consistency of that even internally in the letter. And these people that are with him or that he is greeting take us back to a place in Corinth in his third missionary journey. Now, one of the most important things about the end of Romans is chapter 16, verse 22. We find something interesting here that we do not see in the same manner in any of his other letters. He mentions a man by the name of Tertius in chapter 16, verse 22. This was his amanuensis, or if you would, his scribe, somebody writing on behalf of him. At the very beginning, he absolutely makes it clear, I am Paul. He says, Paul, an apostle. But 
we get to the very end and, and he allows his amanuensis to give a shout out to the audience there in Rome. Now, Tertius is a Latin name, so perhaps he was from the church at Rome helping Paul in Corinth and they would have known him and he gives them this special privilege of shout out and recognition. It says, I, in the first person, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Again, this is an important thing to be identified because at the very beginning of Romans, it's not Tertius writing this letter, it's Paul. It's not Tertius. He states it very clearly in verse 1. If you want me to read it to you, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated <clears throat> to the gospel of God, which he promised before through the prophets and the holy scriptures. And then in the very end, it's like, well, I, Tertius, wrote this. What we're indicating here is that he had an amanuensis. Now, an amanuensis could have been used in a couple of different ways. And actually, Cranfield gives three possibilities of how Paul used him. Um, and the first one is Tertius took down the letter and longhand from Paul's dictation, meaning, um, Paul would have dictated every single word, probably similar to what we talked about with Mark writing down Peter's sermons for him. Uh, this was actually not the most common practice that was done at that time in the Roman world, but it would have, it would have preserved the words of Paul and Paul alone. Now, obviously, it's not complete dictation because he gave Tertius the opportunity to put his own name in the first person in the salutation here. But however, it would be more likely to me that actually Paul did do it this way. But there is a second possibility in that he wrote a shorthand of Paul's dictation. Uh, the second century writer Origen used this method when you read uh, Eusebius uh, stating this about Origen as Origen lectured a scribe Took down his note, took down notes, and then a final copy was made for Origin. And if Origin approved it, it was published. Uh, so that gave a lot of leniency to the scribe to actually make sure he constructed a writing that had the basic format of what he wanted. Now, I do believe, and I told you this last week, I do believe that was probably the case for the pastoral epistles. Paul being in prison, writing out probably his last wills and testaments, like in Second Timothy. Uh, bad eyesight, which we'll talk about again in a minute. It's possible that he used somebody like Luke or one of those that were still with him and said, hey, write a letter for me. Uh, tell Titus these things. I need you to include these things or tell Timothy these things. And then whatever he approved of, uh, told them to include, they may have put up a draft and read it back to him. And Paul would say, well, make sure you add this or yeah, don't worry about adding that or maybe reword this. Paul could have done that. And then they sent the final edition of the letter. That would have been more in line with, I think, those. And if if Luke was the guy that actually did this for Paul, uh, we know that he had a lot of leniency to do his own work, and Paul just approved it, per the Gospel of Luke and Acts. Paul would have approved those. It would have been under his authority to do so, but he wouldn't have written that or dictated it to that length. He may have gave him things to include, and Luke would have put it out in the wording that he saw best. Paul would have said, that's good, I'm good with that, and sent it out. That would have been possible. So I could see that happening in the pastorals. I don't think in a letter the size of Romans, with all the information that is taught here, it would have been done in the shorthand. Third opportunity or possibility is he more independently composed the letter following directions from Paul or perhaps using notes from Paul, which would have been basically he published something kind of Pauline 
or indicated by Paul or something he learned from Paul. I don't think that's the case either. I actually do think it's the longhand dictation, particularly in this letter. Now, Paul usually signed his own letters, even if he didn't do most of the writing, he would still sign it. It would appear on some occasions, though, he did write the whole thing in his own hand. And that would probably be more like Philemon. We talked about that as well. He said, I, I'm writing this to you with my own hand. I will repay it. Now, in that case, being the short length that it was to Philemon, it's very likely that he didn't use an amanuensis for Philemon. He wrote it himself, the whole thing, not just the salutation, because in everywhere else, it seems like he writes salutation, but not the rest of the letter. Philemon, he's writing a personal letter again. And I want to emphasize this. We cannot compare a personal written letter to a corporate church letter. I do not think they're identical. I don't think the terms are always going to be identical. And the personality and the approach is going to be different. The attitude is going to be different. And if Paul wants to make a point like he did, dude, I'm telling you, I'm going to repay this thing. I will pay for it. I'm making you a promise. And the promise is indicated by his own personal hand. It's likely he didn't just write it in that one section, verse 19. He probably would have wrote that whole letter being as short as it was. But in letters such as Galatians, Paul stated that he wrote it with his own hand and in large letters, like in Galatians 6.11. It's very likely that he had to write with large letters due to poor eyesight, which we touched on as well. He hinted this earlier in Galatians 4.13. He said, um, there was a time I had to come to you, you'd have plucked your own eyes out and given them to me because he's talking about his physical infirmity. And he said, you guys would have plucked out your own eyes and gave them to me. And because I tell you the truth, now I've become your enemy. I mean, that that's what he was reasoning with them in chapter four. So that's very possible. He had very poor eyesight. And that's why he wrote with big letters, as he says in Galatians 6.11. So he does indicate that he does write things with his own hand. And it could be that Galatians he wrote with his own hand. But Galatians would have been a very early letter, just like Philemon. So maybe Paul did more writing uh, early on. But then again, maybe that's not the full case. Maybe there's another side to this where Paul actually signs off on certain things to identify his letters, which is what we're going to look at here. It would appear that Paul placed his own signature in the salutations to protect against forgeries that were coming to the church with his name on them. Now let's pause right here and have a discussion. Paul tells us that he knows letters are coming to the church with his name on it. This is before even the ones that were given by Marcion published under his name, like the Laodicea and the Alexander. There was already in Paul's lifetime forgeries taking place, fully aware of what's going on with this. But let's talk about how Paul dealt with this. He, he came up with a strategy to protect against forgery. He mentions this in 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2, and I'll read it to you in verse number 2. Not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as it is from us, as though the day of Christ is gone. So he's saying, look, don't freak out if you get this letter from us or from these ministers, etc. Don't be shaken by these things. So he puts a protective notion in here in chapter number three, verse number 17. He said, the salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. 
Paul saying as a sign of authenticity to demonstrate it's really me. I'm going to use an amanuensis, which is probably what he did, to write my letter for me. But when it comes to the salutation, when I'm giving you my salutation, I will write it in my own hand. And typically it looks like verse 16. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Those kinds of terminologies, grace and peace, that kind of salutation. Paul says, I'm going to write that in my own hand. So what that would probably look like with an amanuensis is one person's handwriting for the whole entire letter. And then you get to the salutation and Paul in big letters writes his own signature to identify it's me. So a forgery would come in and it wouldn't have Paul's handwriting. Um, and the way to know this, because he's using an amanuensis. Again, he's, he's an older guy. He's got bad eyesight uh, more than likely. So he's going to use somebody else to do the work, he'd probably dictate a lot what is said and approve it and send it out. But even with that, he wants to put a signature in there. And he states, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. So he would have done it in every epistle as a way of protection from forgery. So a forgery would have come in with Paul's name on it. It would have looked like the same, same handwriting all the way through the letter. There wouldn't have been a second second hand coming in, writing out the salutation in big letters. So that that was an indicator of forgery. They received it from a valid person that he lists in the in the letter, and then that valid person brings the letter to the church. They read it and they look at the original autograph of Paul. It would have had one person's handwriting, and then at the salutation, it would have had a big lettered salutation indicating Paul authenticating his own letter. You see this brought up in other places. It's brought up again in Colossians 4.18. It's brought up again in 1 Corinthians 16.21. It's likely as Paul got older, he used the amanuensis more and more, but wanted to continue to validate his letters and in doing that, protect them by giving his own signature in the salutation. The one in Colossians 4 verse 18 uh, says, this salutation by my own hand. Paul, remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. I'm writing this ending in my own hand. Same idea. He does the same thing again in 1 Corinthians. Again, one of the older letters of Paul. In chapter number 16, verse number 21, he writes the similar wording for us, indicating authenticity. It says in verse 21, the salutation with my own hand, Paul's. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus, etc., He's indicating once more, he's the writer, he's the authority behind this by signing off. Now, as it relates to Romans, we have a little bit of a different situation. Tertius would have written pretty much the whole letter. And Paul would have either signed the salutation, and here's the funny part about this. There is a salutation in Romans, but there's some discrepancy about the salutation. I'm going to tell you why I think that's the case in just a second. But at the very end of Romans, we are given a signature to Tertius, which is different from everybody else. Again, later letter, definitely using amanuensis because he's, again, older, eyesight, all those problems. But he lets the amanuensis put his own signature, which you don't see in his other letters. And I think that creates some problems. So what it could be is that Paul actually wrote this letter and maybe Tertius was not 
his only amanuensis. Maybe he had other scribes with him. But it seems difficult as to where to end this letter. In the manuscript tradition, we have differences as to the ending of Romans. Most may not know that. Looking into Romans chapter number 16, you get to verse 24 and you have the, the usual, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now, not all manuscripts have that verse, but those same words are repeated earlier in verse 20. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Every word is the same except all. Grace be with you all. What's ironic is that for the first time in a big scenario, the critical text editions that we have of the New Testament, the modern critical texts actually agree with the Texas Receptus or what's formed of the Texas Receptus that we have. Obviously, we've talked multiple times in many of my shows about the differences. There are not, there is not just one TR edition, but the one that most people refer to today is Scrivener's text. But if we're looking at Scrivener's final publication of the TR that's used today, what we find is that verse number 24 is there and the end of verse number 20. But it ends in the same place with the inclusion of verse 25 to 27 as the critical text. The only difference is the critical text does not have verse 24. It only has the ending in verse 20 and goes right into verse 25. There is no verse 24. If you use an NIV or an ESV or an ASV, if you look at it, there's either going to be a note there uh, or it's not going to have it at all. Like I believe the ESV doesn't even have it. It just goes straight into the verse 25, skips 24. It's virtually the same words with the exception of the word all. And the, the TR has every bit of it. It has the fuller of all the words. But the majority of manuscripts, which are predominantly Byzantine-based manuscripts, actually end the book of Romans in verse number 24. It does have the final salutation, but it ends there. In fact, there's actually differences as to where the words of verse 25 and verse 27 are placed. And I want to walk through that with you. So it's like, where where do we place this thing? Where Where does Romans end? It's kind of crazy as to the location. So what does the letter end? TR edition agrees with the critical text that verse 25 through 27 is the ending. The only difference, critical edition doesn't have verse 24 at all. It just only has the salutation in the end of verse 20. TR has both. The majority text ends in 24 and places the last three verses of chapter four, at the end of chapter 14. So when you come into the words of verse 25 of chapter 16, it says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery, keep secret since the world began, but now made manifest the pro- prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for the obedience to the faith to God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. And that's where the the majority text actually has all those words, but they're not there. The critical text places them there. The TR places them there. But actually the majority text places it at the end of chapter number 14, where it ends with, do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves. But 
He who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not done of faith is sin. And then this beautiful benediction is brought in at the end of Romans there. The majority of the manuscripts we have covering Romans, which are predominantly Byzantine, you know, 6th century and up, 6th, 7th century and up, place the benediction there. And even crazier than that, um, there's some that place it in different places. Like, for example, 46 is probably the one of the oldest manuscripts we have, Papyrus 46, of the Book of Romans. And it places it after chapter 15. Uh, so th there's some unique things going on here. And Alexandrinus actually, along with manuscript 33, puts the benediction after chapter 14 and chapter 16. It left them in both. Put them in both sections. So we have the words, but they're not always in the same place. So P46 actually places them before chapter 16, right after chapter 15. So you have in chapter 15, it ends with, now the God of peace be with you all, amen. And then it gives the benediction. And then it goes into chapter 16. And this is one of the oldest manuscripts we have. The ones that include verse 24 is some pretty decent manuscripts. D06, G012, 044, 049. They all have verse 24, which is one of the salutations that's not in the critical text. But it is in the majority text. It is in the TR where it says the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Critical text does not repeat. These manuscripts do. But what's instrumental to note is the best manuscripts, and I mean the best you can find on this coverage, don't have verse 24. Now, that would include P46, P61, Aleph, B, C, Alexandrinus, 13, 19, 15, 73, 17, 16, uh, 1739, and 1962. None of them have verse 24. And Aleph and B being two of the most important that we have, especially of the whole New Testament, in addition to two papyri being consistent with that. And then you have, you know, you have Alexandrinus now brought in, which is fifth century. You have C brought in, which is around the same time. All of these manuscripts are indicating to us that there is no ending in verse 24. The salutation is actually the one that should remain in verse 20, where it just ends with the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. And then it goes right into his fellow workers and his greeting and then the benediction. Except for P46. The benediction actually goes at the end of chapter 15. So here's the thing. Why all the confusion? Is it after chapter 14? Is it after chapter 15? Is it after chapter 16? And my goodness, does verse 24 belong there? Let me give you a hypothesis of what I believe is going on. Um... I don't believe verse 24 belongs there. I believe the ending should end in verse 20. I think verse 24 should be omitted just for the fact that it's not in the, the not only the earliest, but the best manuscripts that we have that I just listed to you, the earliest papyri, two of the most fullest earliest manuscripts, even some of the Byzantine manuscripts don't have it. Uh, so I don't think verse 24 belongs there. And again, if that bothers you, I'm sorry. The same words are found right there in verse 20. You're not losing out on what's being said. You're not losing on a salutation. But that's where Paul would have signed. That's where Paul would have signed. So the question is, did he sign twice? 
or did he sign once? In this place, this is where Paul would have left his signature in the salutation. Is the salutation that Paul said he does in all of his epistles done two times or one time? I would argue that he would have placed in the verse 20 section, and the God of peace who will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. I believe Paul would have signed it right there. And Tertius would have likely picked right back up in where verse 21 is. Timothy, my fellow worker, and then he lists Jason and others, his own countrymen, greet you. It's very likely that Tertius would have picked up right there because then he says in verse 22, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. The question is, did Paul have two signatures? Which, again, I think the earliest manuscripts indicate that this greeting, this salutation is only in one place, not two. And Paul probably would not have signed it twice. So Tertius picks back up by the time you get to verse 22. And then, bam, you have 23 and 24, which Tertius would have wrote. Unless Tertius gave a salutation with his hand and Paul gave one in his hand. So if Paul would have signed the salutation, it would have definitely been in verse 20. Because by the time you get to verse 24, that's Tertius writing again. So it could be that they both belong there, which again, I don't think is the case. But let's just say for the sake of argument, it is. The first salutation is Paul's hand. The second is Tertius's hand. Because again, we have something happening here that's unusual. Paul lets his amanuensis give a first person shout out. He doesn't do that anywhere else. So it could be the reason we have variances is because of the Pauline signature and the preserved would have been there at the end of verse 20. And now you have Tertius perhaps bringing his salutation in, which would have been omitted or never put there at all. We don't know. Again, I would say verse 24 doesn't belong, but it's very possible. Uh, that Tertius gave his own salutation, just like Paul, just adding one word, all. Now, why so many differences, though? But, like, why, why so many endings? I think it's because of the amanuensis. I think it goes back to the whole si- signature thing. Because Paul let Tertius put his own ending in here, it it probably created some problems for transmission. And here's another possibility. Tertius was not the only writer. Now, it's possible that Paul used more than one scribe, and that's not uncommon either. Multiple scribes was not an uncommon thing. Could it be that Paul had multiple amanuensises and these letters were being distributed in multiple locations? Again, I, I want to—I just want to bring this back in, in conclusion because I, I don't want to take a lot, a lot of time here. When you talk about a letter that Paul wrote, or anybody for that matter, they didn't just make one single copy and send it on out, and that's that. Whatever happens to it, it's like, well, hope it turns out well and it doesn't get distorted. Paul would have kept a a copy for himself. His amenuous probably would have had a copy for himself. And there would have been multiple letters sent out, not just to the church at Rome. It would have been sent out in multiple locations. The church in Corinth probably would have had a copy of the the book of Romans, where Paul's writing it from. Now, in order to do that, sometimes there was a group effort to make something happen. You'd have more than one scribe. Uh, they would come together, and Paul would dictate what to write. 
we could see this uh, in that timeline of history with some of the Greco-Roman writers. Similar things happen with an amanuensis. Uh, let's just say three. I'm just going to make, make up a number. There were three people that come together. They put this letter together. Paul dictates it. They read through it. Um, they, they exchange. Paul has maybe his own master copy or he has a master copy that somebody wrote for him. And that becomes the standard. And everybody's comparing their work to the master copy and corrections are made. And then a fresh printed edition is done that corresponds with the master copy or the author himself. And once those are approved, all of them are considered initial texts or original autographs. All of them sent out. It could be in this circumstance that multiple letters, multiple letters were published from Corinth and multiple scribes were allowed to put their name in them. And perhaps Tertius was the letter that was sent to Rome and it's the one that's been preserved. Perhaps another guy, you know, you know, Ephraim or somebody stuck one down into a different location. We, we don't know. We can only theor give theory and hypothesis as to what. And it could be that other amanuenses were allowed to put their signature and name and they went into different regions. And that's why we have multiple endings of Romans that can't correspond because different scribes sent out their own personal claim. And a lot of what we have came from Tertius's own copy. We don't know. But the fact that there's different endings could bring out the fact that there were multiple scribes helping write this for Paul. And in the uniqueness of Romans, the scribe gets to put his first person salutation in there could be the reason we have problems of ending the letter. Now, where the benediction belongs, I, I, I don't know. I mean, to be honest, it's kind of out of place at the end of the letter. That doesn't mean Paul didn't put it there. Maybe the majority text is on to something. Maybe the majority text has it in the right location. Maybe P46 has it in the right location, being one of the earliest copies, right after chapter 15. <laughs> Maybe the scribes uh, looking at Alexandrinus or 33, they're like, I, could be after 14, could be after 16. Let's just stick it in both. We're not sure. They obviously had circulated letters with different endings. And that could be because different scribes published it for Paul. I don't know. I'm not being dogmatic. I'm giving you a thought because you don't have this problem in any of the other Pauline letters except here. Except here is the only place. So in conclusion, I would say that this letter is Pauline. There's no dispute really in any scholarship about it. and But we we're able to go through why that's the case. You see that it was probably written from Corinth, just looking at the internal evidence. Based on what he says in chapter 15, as well as coordinating with Acts, it was probably written on his third missionary journey in his travels, trying to aid and help the churches in Jerusalem. All of these things are identified for us in the letter here, as well as Acts. Phoebe would have been his carrier who carried this to Rome, identifying a person of interest in that chain of custody. Tertius was his scribe. Who, who wrote this letter, Paul probably would have still given his own salutation in it. This is the letter of Paul to the Romans. It is uh, clearly Pauline. Uh, it is authentic to Paul. We can trust it. We can rely in it. We believe it is scripture. We believe it indicates the clearness of that. Tertullian defended it 
as God's apostle writing and confirming the law of Moses in it when he fought against Marcion in these matters. I think these are important discussions to have. And as we continue to go through the Pauline corpus, corpus we're going to continue to go through his le- letters and his, his personal, as we will look at Philemon, and then other these corporate letters he wrote. We're going to investigate, just like we do here. The evidence is clear of Pauline authorship. Therefore, we should receive this as a letter from the apostle himself, sent by God as he said he was. And in doing so, these are the words of God. These are scripture. Uh, There are some differences in the ending, like we said. The words that are in verse 24 are repeated in verse uh, verse 20. So again, we're not really losing anything here. Where the benediction go, Paul wrote it. Uh, We can debate whether it belongs at the end of 16, 15, or 14. Those words were authentic. They were at least quoted and they were duplicated in other letters. We can rely on them as being Pauline as well. And it's a beautiful benediction. Uh, So looking at this, it is definitely Pauline. And uh, we should trust the words there from apostolic authority from God and uh, utilize it in our lives. And I know the Lord has used the doctrine of the book of Romans um, very well. And again, again, there's no dispute about Romans. But again, we have to identify... Just because scholars say it is or isn't, isn't the answer. We have to investigate why. So what we did in this program today, we investigated why it's Paul. We investigated where Paul would have written it from, when he would have written it, uh, the composition, the layout, the, the the connections, the chain of custody. We're doing more than just saying we think it's Paul because of the language. We're doing more than modern scholarship. And even modern scholarship brings in these connecting factors like we talked about. And in those connecting factors, it's the same ones that they use to validate this letter are those same people in history who validate his other letters that they dispute. So again, it's a double standard. I find it ironic how this happens all the time. There are a couple comments um, uh, going in here. I I can read a couple of them just because we have a few minutes. I like that you aren't assuming anything here, but what serious person doubts the authorship of Romans? Uh, Nobody, as I just stated, that's not the point. The point isn't that anybody's doubting Romans. We're going through the whole canon. We're going to look at every book, whether it's disputed or not disputed. But what we're going to do is not just take anybody or one person or two people or a whole consensus of scholarships word for it. We're going to investigate the internal evidence. We're going to investigate the external evidence. We're going to cooperate in history. We're going to cooperate. We talked about the archaeological discovery today. All of that's going to be a part of our argument to making uh, sure we have a correct letter from a correct person, a correct audience, and then looking at it from the divine person as well as from the human element. So we're not looking to say, oh, there's doubt on Romans. I don't think anybody doubts that. Not even the atheists doubt that. That's not the point. The point is, is we're teaching our audience how to do canonical investigation. Yeah, obviously we could take a whole year to do Romans to do that. I'm doing one hour programs to give snippets and even ideas and concepts that you can trace out the rest for yourself. These are just indicators and ideas that we're going to put forward that, that that can go further and further and further. It's not an issue of dispute. It's not an issue of whether anybody doubts it. It's we're teaching how to do canonical work. And what you'll find is that when you do this kind of work to validate a book like Romans, you're going to find the same amount of evidence for the pastoral epistles. You're going to find the same amount of evidence from the book of Ephesians. All the ones that are disputed, the standard that's being applied to them is a different standard than Romans because the audience that you go to to identify the person of interest is the same. It's the it's the same. 
and all I'm saying is I'm going to be consistent with this. I'm not going to bounce around because one opinion in, in modern academia has uh, one view and then not the other. Uh, one more comment. No, no one doubts Paul's authorship of Romans, but the question is why when the evidence for Romans is no stronger than the evidence for the pastoral epistles. Yeah. I, again, I just answered that. I, hopefully you, you heard what I was saying. Um, when the evidence for Romans is no stronger, it, it's it, it, to me, I think the pastorals actually have more identifiers. And I showed that last week where the pastorals are actually used more often by statement, by exact name, like Paul's letter to Timothy Romans is typically just in a group. Like it's one of Paul's 14 or it's in the Pauline letters or one of like, that's typically how Romans is. It, it's almost assumed as much. Whereas first, second Timothy and Titus are specifically named at times by origin or by uh, Tertullian or Irenaeus, where it's not as much the case when you're dealing with Romans. So I would say there's actually even more citation of Paul wrote a letter to this guy than it is Roman was written by Paul to the church there at Rome during blah, blah, blah time. I, I actually think there's a higher pile level of a higher pile of evidence and a higher level of evidence going toward the pastorals when it comes to that side of the argument. Then you got the internal. I understand that, but I'm talking about just from the historical side of things. All right. Uh, good comments, good statements. I see some more in there. Again, if you have more questions, you can always add that at the very end of the video, put it in the comments. I'll try to come back to it and visit it. Uh, also, if you are new to explore Christianity, please like the video, but also subscribe to our channel. We will be doing again, the whole canon at some point through this. And there's also other videos, interviews. Santi does quite a bit of interview and good discussions and debates, host debates. So there's some good hot ones that are just fresh off the press. You can look there on the channel for uh, and, and check those out and leave feedback there as well. Uh, also, you can visit our, our work, uh, the multiple apologists we have doing work and writing and research uh, on uh, our website. You can find that on the bottom of the screen at explorechristianity.net. Uh, again, like and subscribe, share the video as well if you found it helpful. Uh, let us know if we can be a help to you. You can also find our email on the website. Reach out to us that way. Find us on any social media platform, Twitter, uh, Instagram, uh, as well as on Facebook. Thank you for joining in and tuning into this episode. I trust it was a help to you as we continue to investigate canonical arguments as we close in Romans today. Grace and peace to you.